British couple David and Eleanor Chambers knew they had to get out of Angola immediately. Fighting had erupted on the streets of Luanda on October 30, 1992, while the couple was visiting the Swedish embassy. Now they were trapped there. David and Eleanor heard guns firing and bombs exploding nonstop from midday to midnight. They were trapped inside with two employees from the Bulgarian embassy and the Zimbabwe ambassador. The five frightened foreigners wondered if they'd survive the conflict. The streets were too dangerous for the group to leave. So instead, they barricaded the doors and boarded the windows, hoping to wait out the fighting. These precautions kept the group safe for only one day until a troop of armed men stormed the embassy. They ordered all of the residents to leave with them. David and Eleanor were afraid to step out onto the street, but even more fearful of the men with guns. The five were roughly ushered into a windowless room with only a single door. Armed men shut off the lights and slammed the door closed, leaving the hostages in darkness. Escape seemed impossible. David and Eleanor had no sense of what was going on until they met the man who'd ordered their capture, Jeremias Shetanda. He was an important diplomat and politician, and one of the last people the pair would have expected to take hostages. But the political tides had turned in Angola. A massacre raged outside, and Shatunda was doing whatever it took to secure his own safety. Either they would all survive the violence, or none of them would. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. This is our first and only episode on Jeremias Shatunda, the vice president of the rebel group known as the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA. This week, we'll explore the cultural and political setting that led Shatunda to join UNITA. We'll discuss how the United States and the USSR grappled for power in Angola as an extension of the Cold War and how those influences led to Shatunda's death. We'll also talk about Shatunda's assassination and how it influenced the coming decades of Angolan politics. Finally, we'll speculate on how the world might be different if Jeremiah Shatunda had never been murdered. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Nothing could discourage 4.8 million Angolans from voting in the nation's first ever democratic elections in late September 1992. The line stretched for hours, and the weather was chilly, 
but excitement filled the air. The vote marked the end of 16 years of warfare. Already, people referred to the recent Civil War as the confusion, ready to put aside old frustrations and grief in favor of something new and exciting. That September, more than 90% of all eligible Angolan voters cast a ballot for the next president. None of them ever imagined that in a matter of weeks, their votes would lead to the deaths of up to 50,000 civilians. When the election concluded on September 30th, the results were too close to call. One of the leading parties, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA, declared the election invalid and staged a violent revolt. Their rival, the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA, responded in kind. In late October and early November of 1992, members of the MPLA marched through the streets, murdering members and suspected members of UNITA including the faction's vice president, Jeremias Shatunda. Shatunda was just one victim of what became known as the Halloween Massacre. The bloodshed left a scar on the psyche of Angolans who still suffer under a dictatorship and fear that violence could erupt again at any time. Jeremias Shatunda was born on February 20th, 1942 in Angola. Little is known about his childhood, but Shatunda's family must have valued education as he attended good schools and earned impressive grades. Shatunda did so well in school, after graduation, he relocated to the United States and attended the University of Arizona on scholarship, earning a degree in mining engineering. Living in another country gave Shatunda a broader perspective on how very different life was between the United States and Angola which was a Portuguese colony at the time. He became painfully aware of the racial and ethnic inequality in his home country, and he learned that many of the country's problems stemmed from its 500-year history of colonial rule. Like many African colonies, Angola was mined for diamonds, and its land was converted into cocoa and sugarcane fields. All the while, its people were treated as second-class citizens by their European overlords. Racial segregation meant white Angolans received preferential treatment to black Angolans. People with fairer skin, traditional European features, or those who assimilated to European standards had more advantages. And resentments bloomed between the advantaged and the disadvantaged Angolans. For example, the traditional rural Bakongo found that their needs were at odds with the more integrated and cosmopolitan Ovimbundu, and both groups distrusted the interracial mestizos who benefited the most from Portuguese rule. Throughout the 1960s, various rebel groups sprung up to overthrow the oppressors and win self-governance. While these rebel movements would have been more powerful if they'd worked together, ethnic tension kept them at odds. In 1966, 32-year-old freedom fighter Jonas Savimbi founded the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA. Although their core values would change later, UNITA was initially pro-communist and anti-colonialist. The same year UNITA was founded, 
A politically inspired 24-year-old Jeremias Shatunda completed his mining engineering degree in Arizona. As soon as he graduated, he returned to Angola and joined Savimbi's cause. It's hard to say for sure what Shatunda thought of the group's communist leanings. Of all the large rebel movements, UNITA was one of the most moderate. It appealed to many who longed for freedom but were uncomfortable with the militant Marxism and ethnic separatism of other groups. One thing is certain, however, from the beginning, Shatunda was completely loyal to Jonas Savimbi. And loyalty was a necessity. Savimbi claimed that their movement wouldn't be successful unless all UNITA members were able to act as one. Any dissident was dealt with brutally. Shatunda didn't personally witness Savimbi's violence against his own followers, but he must have heard the rumors and assured himself that Savimbi's victims deserved what came to them. As he grew within UNITA, Shatunda positioned himself as an outspoken agitator for Angolan independence. This triggered a harassment campaign from the police and Portuguese officials. Soon, Shatunda feared that he was the target of an assassination plot and fled the country. He returned to the United States in the late 1960s, settling once more in the Southwest. There, he established himself as an advocate for Angolan rights. During Shatunda's stay in the U.S., he became a lobbyist, working closely with American figures to push for an independent Angola. He worked for several mining companies, building connections within the industry. Soon, Shatunda was appointed UNITA's representative to the southwestern United States. He continued his advocacy, now with formal backing from Jonas Savimbi himself. While Shatunda's efforts made some headway for the Angolan independence movement, the tides didn't turn until 1974 when Portugal faced a domestic crisis that led them to withdraw their troops from Angola. On November 11, 1975, the nation finally achieved its independence. But the celebration didn't last long. The departure of their Portuguese oppressors created a power vacuum. The various squabbling rebel groups continued fighting one another, plunging the country into a civil war. Many different groups vied for control, but for the purposes of this episode, we're just going to focus on two major factions, UNITA and their main rival, the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA. UNITA and the MPLA were both offshoots of the same rebel organization, and on paper, their ideals were nearly identical. Both believed in liberating Angola from colonial rule and instituting an independent communist government. And yet the two groups were bitter rivals because they were supported by opposing ethnic communities, the Umbundu and Ovimbundu, respectively. Strangely, soon after the country achieved independence, Jonas Savimbi reversed UNITA's communist stance and positioned the rebel group as an advocate for a capitalist free market. Many believe that Savimbi didn't have strong beliefs regarding either economic system. Instead, he may have changed his views to justify the fight against the MPLA and seize more power for UNITA. 
Jeremiah Shatanda either ignored his mentor's sudden hypocrisy or understood that Savimbi had reasons for his change in position. Either way, things were looking up for him. Thanks to Angola's liberation, the 34-year-old Shatanda was able to return home in 1976 after a decade in exile. But his homecoming was short-lived. That same year, he was appointed the UNITA representative to the United States. Where once he had built connections and support in the southwestern U.S., now he moved to Washington, D.C. to press the federal government to back UNITA. Ironically, after a decade of fighting for independence, he was now tasked with linking his country to U.S. policies. His efforts were stymied, in large part by the 1976 Clark Amendment, which forbade direct military support to any Angolan rebel group. But the U.S. could still indirectly influence the conflict through diplomatic efforts and private enterprise. And they had good reason to. Behind the scenes, the United States and the USSR saw Angola as a battleground for the Cold War. Each nation hoped to influence the fledgling country and win another nation over to either capitalism or communism. The Soviet Union and Cuba both funneled money into the communist MPLA. Cuban troops shipped out to Angola, swelling the MPLA ranks and assisting in several military victories. South Africa supported UNITA, but their resources were minimal. Shatunda knew that in order to keep up, UNITA needed military assistance from a superpower like the United States, and that meant he needed to see the Clark Amendment repealed. Coming up, Jeremiah Shatunda is caught up in the second deadliest massacre in Angolan history. Now, back to the story. In November of 1975, Angola finally achieved independence from their Portuguese colonizers. But soon after that victory, the nation was plunged into the violence of a civil war between the MPLA and UNITA. 33-year-old Jeremias Shatunda was sent to Washington, D.C. to lobby the U.S. government for support. For a decade, Shatunda split his time and attention between his home country and his new American position. As UNITA moved away from its communist roots, the movement became increasingly reactionary, taking oppositional civilians hostage and adopting a hard-line stance that they could never negotiate peaceful terms with communists. As the U.S. pushed for peace, Savimbi seemed increasingly committed to total warfare. Even the staunchly anti-communist President Ronald Reagan was reluctant to openly cooperate with the group. But large swaths of Reagan's far-right base supported UNITA. Shatunda leveraged that influence to pressure Reagan's administration for more support. Thanks largely to Shatunda's efforts, the Clark Amendment was repealed in 1985, 10 years into the Angolan Civil War. The change in policy allowed the U.S. government to formally supply UNITA with money, weapons, and support. Beginning in 1986, the U.S. government gifted roughly $250 million to UNITA. 
Only Afghanistan's Mujahideen received more American aid during that time period. Confident that he had finally secured the backing Unita needed, 44-year-old Shatunda returned to his home country victorious. In August of 1986, UNITA held their periodic internal election to determine party leadership. As had been the case every year since the party's founding, Jonas Savimbi had secured the position of president, and Jeremiah Shatunda was elected UNITA's vice president. The new title expanded the responsibilities he had held for decades. He'd continue to focus on public relations while also overseeing much of UNITA's day-to-day -day management. He was well aware of how much the group depended on U.S. support and frequently visited with Congress and gave statements to the American media. But Angola and the United States were uneasy partners in spite of their shared opposition to communism. UNITA was considered far right, even to U.S. conservatives at the time. In addition, intelligence reports suggested that the president of UNITA, Jonas Savimbi, was little more than an opportunistic warlord with a history of killing his own people for personal gain. In 1987, a high-ranking UNITA member, Tito Shingunji, tipped off several U.S. leaders to Savimbi's brutal treatment of dissenters and deserters. According to Shingunji, Savimbi oversaw murders, torture, and even witch burnings. In fact, burning at the stake was a favorite execution method for Savimbi. He levied accusations of witchcraft against anyone he saw as a threat, including other UNITA leaders whose popularity rivaled his own. Savimbi must have feared that the claims would shake his followers' loyalty. Someone had to address them. He summoned Shatunda for a private meeting. We don't know what the men discussed, but in May 1989, Shatunda released a public condemnation that denounced the informant Shingunji as a liar and called anyone who was led astray by him a fool. Four months later, in November 1989, Savimbi charged Shingunji with witchcraft and treason. When Shingunji pled innocent, Savimbi ordered him to be tortured until he confessed. After his trial, Shingunji was never again seen in public. He was permitted to meet and speak with the press only under Savimbi's watchful eye. If Jeremiah Shatunda was troubled by any of this, he gave no indication. Two years later, in 1991, Angolan media reported the murder of Shingunji and his family. Few details were made public. An unknown party had shot Shingunji, his wife, and his children in their home. When questioned about whether he'd ordered Shingunji's murder, Savimbi claimed that either UNITA defectors or the CIA were responsible. Officials in the United States doubted his explanations and denied any CIA involvement. Meanwhile, Shatunda was put in charge of the formal investigation into Shingunji's death. He pushed the party line, insisting that Savimbi had nothing to do with it and was the victim of a smear campaign. He also reiterated that no matter what flaws Unita had, they couldn't possibly be as bad as the MPLA. Still, the incident troubled the U.S. 
Although then-President George H.W. Bush wanted to halt the spread of communism, he was reluctant to install a dictator in Angola, or at the very least, to be perceived as having done so in the international community. So President Bush offered Chitanda only enough support to counterbalance the USSR's and Cuban's efforts. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1991 and the USSR announced that they would no longer support the MPLA, Bush saw an out and pushed for peace negotiations in Angola. The U.S. and the Soviet Union, in cooperation with the U.N., eventually secured an agreement between the MPLA and UNITA to host a democratic election. Savimbi and the MPLA representatives, including their president, José Eduardo dos Santos, each agreed to honor the results. On September 29th and 30th, 1992, for the first time in the country's history, Angola hosted open democratic elections. Many were enthused not only by their first foray into democracy, but also because the elections marked an end to 16 years of open civil war that killed roughly 200,000 people. The two leading presidential candidates were Jonas Savimbi representing UNITA and José Eduardo dos Santos for the MPLA. More than 91% of all registered voters cast their ballots. The United Nations sent election observers who reported that the polling places were operated fairly and there were no signs of illegal interference. All in all, Angola's first democratic election seemed to be a success. Throughout the two-day election period, the race between Savimbi and Dos Santos was too close to call, but the MPLA candidates took a clear lead in the legislative races. This was a surprise to all involved, as UNITA consistently led in the polls leading up to the election. But as the votes were cast, MPLA's lead grew with every passing hour. Soon, their victory was such a certain conclusion, Dos Santos's party declared themselves the winners before polls had even closed. Savimbi countered, saying that MPLA's premature declaration was evidence of vote tampering and fraud. When the official counts were finalized at the end of the day on September 30th, Savimbi only became more belligerent. Savimbi had received 40% of the vote, while Dos Santos won 49.6%. The Angolan constitution required that a presidential candidate receive at least 51% of the vote to be declared the winner. If neither candidate won a clear majority, runoff elections would follow. In the hours after the results were announced, Jeremias Shatunda traveled to Angola's capital city of Luanda to begin planning for the runoffs. He seemed unaware of what Savimbi was plotting. Days after the election, Savimbi publicly contested the results. He accused the MPLA of vote tampering and threatened to march on the capital city of Luanda with his army over 35,000 strong if he wasn't granted the presidency. In response, the UN reiterated that they could find no evidence of vote tampering. Nevertheless, Savimbi continued to insist that the election was illegitimate. In violation of the ceasefire agreement, 
he ordered UNITA fighters to attack several cities that were known to be MPLA strongholds. In early October, UNITA forces seized Uambo and Cuito. Tens of thousands of people died in the brief and brutal battles. It's unclear what Savimbi hoped to accomplish in contesting the election and attacking civilians. It's possible, but unlikely, that he genuinely believed the election results were doctored. More likely, Savimbi was an opportunist who used the alleged vote tampering as an excuse to resume fighting. His previous actions suggested that his only real goal was amassing power for himself, and he had nothing to gain by conceding the election to his rivals. As the fighting raged, UNITA officials fled Luanda, fearful that the violence would reach the capital. But Shatunda stayed behind. Perhaps he was so clouded with loyalty to Savimbi that he failed to consider his own safety. Or maybe he didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. As a prominent member of UNITA, 50-year-old Shatunda was in more danger in Luanda than he'd ever been in before. The MPLA had no reason to trust Savimbi or any of his followers, especially after he reneged on the ceasefire. On the night of October 30th, Dos Santos sent his men on the offensive. That night, MPLA supporters marched through the streets of Luanda. They knocked on the doors of known and suspected UNITA supporters. Anyone unwise enough to answer was dragged into the streets, beaten, stabbed, or shot. Because so many UNITA supporters belonged to the Ovimbundu ethnic group, these people were disproportionately targeted for violence. Reportedly, MPLA sympathetic police passed out weapons to anyone who asked for them, contributing to the chaos. In the words of African newspaper Jeune Afrique, Luanda became a hunting grounds where armed bands of MPLA supporters murdered any civilian they came across, regardless of that person's political leanings. According to the Human Rights Watch, in three days of fighting, at least 1,200 civilians died on the streets of Luanda alone. Shitanda and other UNITA leaders knew that they couldn't leave the city without being spotted by MPLA forces who would shoot them on sight. But if they remained in the capital, it was only a matter of time before the rival soldiers stormed their safe house and slaughtered them. Shitanda needed to take drastic measures to escape with his life. He knew that MPLA troops were beholden to the international community, just like UNITA. If the enemy soldiers didn't value Shatunda's life, he'd find foreigners to act as human shields. Shatunda may have been inspired by other UNITA leaders who attempted to break into the U.S. Embassy in the early days of the fighting. While those leaders weren't able to successfully take hostages, Shatunda thought he could learn from their failures. On October 31, 1992, Shatunda ordered a group of soldiers to storm the Swedish embassy looking for high-profile hostages. They captured five foreign individuals, including a British couple and the Zimbabwean ambassador, and took them back to Shatunda's safe house. For 24 hours, the hostages were held in a lightless room with no windows. Armed guards watched the doors at all hours. 
The prisoners weren't informed of what was going on or why they'd been taken. Shatunda and his men made their move the next day. The prisoners were split between three cars, each carrying at least four UNITA leaders and their entourages toward the city limits. Two and a half miles lay between Shatunda's safe house and the nearest exit route out of town. Shatunda's driver tore through the city, barreling through the streets at 100 miles per hour. As they sped through hostile territory, the motorcade rushed through gunfire, but Shatunda's men managed to avoid taking any hits. Just when it seemed that Shatunda might escape, they hit a roadblock right on the edge of town. The drivers had no choice but to slow to a stop. It's unclear what was said between Shatunda and the MPLA soldiers, but evidently they didn't want to let him pass. Shatunda's car lurched forward, crashing through the blockade at breakneck speed. Two of the hostages, David and Eleanor Chambers, screamed in fear as the car sped out of the city in a barrage of gunfire. As they escaped, MPLA soldiers leaped into their own cars and followed in pursuit. The soldiers continued to fire at Shatunda's three cars throughout the chase. One of the drivers was hit by a bullet and instantly died. The vehicle spun out of control and struck the other two. Dave and Eleanor Chambers, the British couple, were the only hostages to survive the crash. Before they had a chance to climb from the wreckage, the doors were torn open and MPLA officials dragged all the survivors from the car. One of those survivors was Jeremiah Shatunda. The soldiers pressed a gun to his head and pulled the trigger at point-blank range. Shatunda dropped to the ground, dead. Fighting raged on the streets of Luanda from October 30th to November 1st, leading to over 1,200 deaths. The event came to be known as the Halloween Massacre, or the Three Days Massacre. Although it's clear that the slaughter came at the orders of MPLA's leadership, it's uncertain who made the call to execute Shatunda at the barricade. His death is still unsolved today. Coming up, we'll look at the political climate following Shatunda's death and how the world might be different without the Halloween massacre. Now, back to the story. After UNITA President Jonas Savimbi contested the results of Angola's first democratic election in 1992, violence erupted between his party and the MPLA. At least 1,000 people were murdered in the street, including the UNITA vice president, Jeremias Shatunda. On November 2nd, after three days of slaughter, UN peacekeepers once again negotiated a ceasefire between Savimbi and the MPLA. While troops inside the capital city of Luanda honored the agreement, fighting continued to rage in the rural areas outside the city. Soon after Shatunda's death, MPLA troops seized his personal diaries. They publicly released several alleged excerpts claiming that Shatunda and other UNITA leaders had plotted the violent overthrow of Angola's government. 
According to the MPLA, the Halloween massacre was an act of self-defense against the murderous rebels. Savimbi and other UNITA representatives, meanwhile, denied that the diary excerpts were real. They insisted the MPLA had fabricated the entries to manipulate popular supports. When UN peacekeepers reviewed the alleged diary, they concluded that it was real, but found no evidence of a treasonous UNITA plot. It seemed both parties were culpable for the massive loss of life. Thanks to propaganda efforts from both sides that made even local news reports suspect, it's impossible to say how many people died in the siege of Uambo and Cuito in addition to the other battles throughout the country in October and November of 1992. Estimates place the national death toll anywhere between 10,000 and 50,000. The loss of life was so severe, many international leaders washed their hands of the whole affair and withdrew their support from Angola entirely. When Bill Clinton took over the presidency in 1993, the United States abruptly ceased its support to UNITA. At the start of its conflict, Angola was a fulcrum of the Cold War. Now the Soviet Union was defunct and the U.S. wanted nothing to do with the nation. After the struggles in 1992, President Dos Santos, building on his electoral victory, demanded that the world condemn UNITA and legitimize him as the true president of Angola. Even the U.S. formally recognized Dos Santos's presidency, but Jonas Savimbi still refused to accept defeat. On Friday, February 22, 2002, Savimbi and 21 of his bodyguards engaged in a pitched battle with Angolan federal soldiers. During the fighting, he lost radio contact with the rest of his troops. While he tried to re-establish contact with his men, he was a sitting duck. Enemy troops ambushed him. The federal soldiers tried to take Savimbi hostage, but the UNITA men fired back. In the ensuing fight, Savimbi and all his bodyguards were killed. With the death of Savimbi, UNITA dissolved. Finally unopposed, the MPLA became the uncontested ruling party of Angola. The civil war was declared over in 2002. Since then, the MPLA has held continuous power over Angola. No other rebel group or alternative party has gained enough popular support to be a real challenger. Although Angola has technically been at peace for nearly two decades, Tensions between the MPLA and oppositional citizens continue to simmer. After decades of civil war and mass killings, Angola has developed a strong taboo regarding political dissent and even discussions of massacres. The events of late October and early November of 1992 are rarely discussed. This piece of history is not taught in schools and many young Angolans are unaware of the deaths of Jeremiah Shatunda and tens of thousands of others. Jeremiah Shatunda frequently claimed that he longed for a free and independent Angola. But in practice, Shatunda supported a man who consistently put his personal ambition ahead of the good of the nation. 
In addition, Shatunda's so-called fight for freedom was corrupted by outside nations that saw Angola as a pawn on an international chessboard. For all his talk of independence, Shatunda's efforts were utterly beholden to the United States. If Shatunda were still alive, he'd certainly object to the MPLA's uncontested hold on the Angolan government. But it's hard to say whether he would be more discomforted by the lack of democracy and freedom or by the fact that the MPLA had ultimately defeated UNITA. We can't know for sure whether Shatunda was an opportunistic hypocrite or if he was truly deluded by Savimbi's rhetoric. But how different would Angola look without Shatunda's murder? For the final part of this episode, we'd like to explore how the world might have been different if the Halloween massacre had never happened. After the vote on September 29th and 30th, 1992, a follow-up runoff election could have gone either way. In the first election, Dos Santos was less than 2% away from winning the majority necessary to be declared president. It's pretty likely that in the second election, he could have received the small uptick of votes he needed to win. If Savimbi had honored those election results, the MPLA would have still gained power and control of the Angolan government. However, instead of another decade of civil war, Angola may have seen a peaceful transition of power. Without the slaughter of countless UNITA supporters, more pro-capitalist voices would have served alongside MPLA leaders in Angola's legislature. While it's unlikely that the two parties would have completely resolved their differences, they could have maintained a healthy system of checks and balances. By today, Angola would probably have a functional two-party government rather than the single-party rule that currently exists. Neither party would have the unilateral hold necessary to pass their most controversial policies, and Angola would have developed into a more centrist nation. Without the violence of 1992, tens of thousands more Angolans would have survived the 90s and 2000s, leading to a population boom. A larger, healthier population under a truly democratic government could invest resources into schools and businesses, helping the nation develop a strong economy. As for Jeremiah Shatunda, he likely would have continued to build on his years of international diplomacy. He may have been appointed an ambassador to the United States or found some other way to utilize his diplomatic network. As an individual, Shatunda's death made only the smallest ripple through Angola. But because he was one of thousands slaughtered in the Halloween massacre, his murder became emblematic of the brutal and senseless Angolan Civil War. Shatunda's legacy in Angola is complicated, as is that of UNITA. He remains a figure of capitulation and courage, a brave freedom fighter who also sold out his nation's best interests to advance one man's ambition. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Anthony Valsic, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 